Hello and welcome to Marvel Moments, the show where we take one moment, just one scene from a Marvel Studios movie or TV show and explore it in depth before using it as a jumping off point to discuss an overarching theme woven through the breadth of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We then look at a Stan Lee moment, a cameo from the comics legend that resonates with that theme in some way, before finally taking a mindful moment in the MCU as our way of going that bit deeper with the theme. I'm your host Matt, and our theme for today... Our theme for today is Assembled Families and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And as you might be able to tell, I'm not joined today by my regular co-host James. Instead, I'm joined today by Nick and Kerry Carnes. Hi, could you take a moment to introduce yourselves? Sure. I'm Nick Carnes. Um, I live in Durham, North Carolina, and I'm a lifelong Marvel fan. And starting in 2018, I've watched uh, the entire MCU start to finish and kept up with every new uh, film and show ever since. And I'm Carrie Carnes. I'm his wife, and I am um, only a tangential Marvel fan. Um, whenever Nick has been watching a movie, so have I. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I hopefully have caught on to some things. And do you want to talk about our family a little bit? Sure. And um, we're excited to talk about the theme of assembled families in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because together we have kind of an assembled family. Um, we have um, our oldest is my son, Carrie's stepson. Um, and then our middle child is adopted from the foster care system. Our daughter is our our youngest as a, a biological daughter, and then we're also foster parents through the Department of Social Services in our county, and so occasionally we have um, other members of our household who join us, uh, uh, who join our assemblage. That's right. So much like the Avengers, with members coming and going as required. That's it. And sometimes we pull them back, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, no, I've actually described it that way to people. I said, you know, our, our family is a little like the Avengers. There's a core group that's usually there, but then there are some people who move in and move out. And uh, so, yeah, the, this theme really resonates with us, I think. Excellent. Well, thank you for introducing yourselves. I have an icebreaker question for us today. And that is, since we're talking about family, what is your favorite family dynamic from the MCU? Um, well, I can go first. My favorite is Thor and Loki. Um, as a as a parent, you know, I'm seeing my, I guess not my biological child, but my stepson, who is a biological child in our family, um, and how he interacts with our adopted child and kind of um, assumes that the... Uh, the fulfillment, you know, is just naturally there that, you know, our, our middle child isn't searching for something. He doesn't see that struggle that um, our middle child kind of goes through and the questioning that our middle child goes through and just seeing kind of the echoes of, you know, our children's relationship in that brother dynamic is um, it, it's really sweet to me. And it just really resonates mm. um, with our real life. Um, I would say my favorite MCU family dynamic is Tony and Peter. Um, and so, and I'm speaking of someone who's had a lot of, who's often benefited from having like a parent, a surrogate parent or a father figure or a mother figure in my life who was not actually, you know, my biological mother or father. Um, and when I see Tony and Peter inter interact, 
it um, you know takes me back to those kinds of interactions that I've had throughout my life, and uh, it's a really interesting dynamic. In the end, it's a really touching dynamic. So, so that's probably my one of my favorite MCU family dynamics. Thank you. Those are both really beautiful examples. I might be a bit more inclined to think this way because last night I watched Ant Man and the Wasp, but my favorite dynamic at the moment has to be Scott's relationship with his ex-wife Maggie and her husband mm. Jim and of course their daughter Cassie and I was particularly thinking about the adults in the relationship just how wonderfully supportive Maggie and Jim grow to be of Scott it kind of really turns all the old TV tropes on their head the the cop and the ex-con could easily be a complete jerk to our hero but instead he's really rooting for Scott to be the best that he can be. And Maggie's there sticking up for him to the FBI in her inimitable style. Just really, I'd love to see a whole movie about them. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a beautiful family dynamic. So, that's our favourite family dynamics in the MCU. What about the one scene that we're going to look at today? This is Matt, with a short recording I made while editing this show. Kerry, Nick and I had such a great, wide-ranging, in-depth discussion that I decided to split the show into two parts. This first part will feature our Marvel moment and the discussion it launched, as well as a message from a listener. The second part will feature a few more insightful and inspiring messages from our listeners that really got us talking, as well as our Stan Lee moment and a mindful moment in the MCU. But back to this episode, which theme did we choose to launch our discussion on assembled family in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? It was none other than the family dinner scene from 2021's eagerly anticipated Black Widow movie. Let's pick a Marvel moment. This scene takes place after Natasha Romanoff, the Black Widow, has reunited with the group of Russian spies, superheroes, and genius scientists she was embedded with as a child when they posed as an average American family. Someone is trying to kill Natasha, as well as Yelena, the younger Black Widow, and all signs lead them back to the Red Room, the mysterious, sinister organisation that trained them from childhood to be super spies and assassins. If you want to, you can find this scene one hour, ten minutes, and about 40 seconds, 48 seconds into the movie. But we'll tell you about it so that you don't have to. So, what happens in the scene that we're talking about? Sure. So, in this scene, we're, we're seeing um, all the members of Black Widow's uh, um, undercover family all sitting down at the dinner table. And it starts off with um, the the youngest sister, um Florence, what was her name? Melena. Florence Pugh, Yelena. Yelena, um, sitting down at the table and and they're falling into kind of these classic family narratives. You know, the the dads being um, frisky and the moms kind of <laughs> flirting with him, but also you know kind of putting him down in a flirtatious way. The the youngest daughter is scoffing; she's so embarrassed. And the the older child, who you know is always the more serious child, is just very focused, and she's 
um, tired of her, her family's, you know, nonsense. And she just wants to focus on the task at hand. And then they, they continue on in these, in these roles for a little while until finally, uh, Natasha says, no, we, we really need to talk about this. I'm breaking the role. And then they devolve into this conversation about the, um, the authenticity of their family and, and what it means. And uh, Florence's character says how betrayed she was, you know, about this chemical, this project, project, how would, what was the name of the project? This, this project to chemically control yeah, okay. people's minds and how she was subjected to that how, after how the family was dissolved. Who she viewed as her mother made this, this thing that very much hurt her. Yeah. And she wants to hold her responsible and not let her off the hook by saying the family wasn't real and that the mother didn't have an obligation. She's insisting that the mother did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Elaine has this really loaded phrase. She says, don't say that. It was real to me. Yeah. And and you, we, we really see her character, you know, in this new light in this scene because yeah. she's saying, no, I was the youngest. This was the best time of my life being with this family. Who cares? That wasn't real. What? That wasn't real. Who cares? Don't say that. Please don't say that. It was real. It was real to me. You are my mother. You were my real mother. The closest thing I ever had to one. The best part of my life was fake. And none of you told me. And she's holding them to account in a way that most people don't have the... um resilience i guess to hold you know when somebody hurts you right your natural inclination is to say i didn't care anyway yeah um and she kind of goes the opposite direction she says no this was real and you did this to me and i'm not going to let you off the hook and i think that's a really admirable um a mature way to to handle a confrontation like that yeah yeah especially with essentially her parent figures it can be quite hard to to stand up to those who had a, a role in bringing you up, the ones who were meant to be the authority figures, as it were. Yeah. Definitely. That scene is so, I mean, it's so funny and heartbreaking at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's moving the plot forward. We're learning a lot of, you know, just information about the underlying story about mind control and spies and espionage. Um, and there's this, like, genuine, this is what I love about the film as a whole. There's this humor that you can only get in a family context people who really know each other um and you know uh melena is named the pig alexi um and like it's just this organic humor that can only i think or that you really see in a, in a family that knows each other that can pick on each other that can laugh together and then like woven right into that is this like deep pain and these you know um frustrated expectations and um and that's, I mean, that's one of the things I think makes this such a great film is, is we get such a real view of a family here. Mm-hmm. All against the backdrop of they're not a, a, you know, quote unquote, real family. They are truly an assembled family in the most literal possible sense. And yet they're also fully a real family. Um, so it's an amazing scene. Yeah. Everything they do, every little nuance just belies this idea that it's not real. Right. The the text of is it's not real. We we were a show put on by the Red Room or by the Russian go- government uh, to get information, but all the subtext says otherwise. 
I've been listening to um, a podcast by Esther Perel, who's like a therapist, a marriage therapist, um, a lot lately. And something that echoes a lot when she works with families is she talks about the narratives and the roles that we fit into within our families. And that's really the glue that holds a family together. So I also think that's a great kind of vantage point into what is the glue of their family. And they were kind of reestablishing that at first, and maybe they had to reestablish that by acting out those roles before they're able to have that confrontation. And I was also really struck by um, Alexei saying, you know, just know this was real. You are my family. Um, Because I think I've, I've found in, you know, the few years that I've been parenting so much um, of parenting um, or the moments that I was not prepared for or these moments where your kid says something hard, maybe hard and also true. And you just have to say like, no, I love you and I'm here for you. Um, no matter what it is that they're, they're saying like, that's so much of your job as a parent. Mm. Um, and, and again, you know, you're in my mind, I'm seeing him step into that role and choose that role of father, um, in a really active way. Yeah. And when, um, I forget who storms off, but he says, like I'll go talk to her. Like he yeah. is very much stepping back into that role. Yeah. yeah. For for all his faults and you know, the way he has a, of putting his foot in his mouth of saying the wrong thing, <laughs> you know, the oh my daughter's ledgers are gushing with red. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> he, he certainly has quite broad shoulders and thick skin, which I think is quite necessary kind of for anybody who's going to take responsibility. Yeah in a family you, you you can't well i'm sure you do feel the pain when the children when the child kind of rejects you pushes back on you but you have to find the space to let that sit and go i still care for you i still want to hear what the problem is even if i don't understand which, which much like homer simpson you know with lisa mm. he, he doesn't really seem to understand the problem but he's he's willing to fit it out and that's right yeah i'm just thinking oh we didn't quite watch to this bit but the scene where he's sat in the bedroom with yelena and he starts humming and singing american pie just <laughs> letting her know that to him kind of the time they shared as family was real I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride. Something touched me deep inside the day. The music died and they were singing Um, I think we could also maybe talk about, um, uh, trauma in this Mm -hmm. scene as well. And, you know, um, since we're foster parents, I was also thinking when they were talking about three years and, um, you know, the mother is saying it was only three years, you know, and I think as, as adults, it's often really easy to, um, write off your role and your influence. Mm -hmm. And it's so important to keep in mind, like three years for a, how old was she? Six at the time, like six, yeah, a grade school child. That's their whole life. That's all of their living memory. And, um, the, the trauma that occurs is 
is immense and it's hard to empathize with, I think, as an adult, because our lives are just so much longer than theirs. And, you know, we're fully formed in a way that they're not. Yeah. So I actually had the opposite reaction Mm. to that three year remark because I was thinking, you know, we had uh, a foster youth stay with us for two years. And I was thinking that's enough that that person is family like for life, you know, Mm -hmm. forever. This person will be a part of our family. Um, and that was two years. And, and so I had the opposite reaction. I heard that. And I immediately wanted to side with Yelena and say like, no, three years is a long, even if you're an adult, three years is more than uh, enough time to like yeah. fully bond, to fully become family and yeah. for that attachment to persist forever. Yeah. And so I, I sort of was on Yelena's side thinking that, um, you know, that's a cop out to say it was only three years. That's, that's, mm. you know, uh, not how family works. Um, yeah. There's certainly something there about the subjective nature of time yeah. that we can all experience, but that's especially poignant in childhood, kind of where so much can happen right. in such a short space of time. Yeah. Well, and it means so much in terms of how we talk about the authenticity of a family. Um, like, you know, if if you're only married for a year, you know, is and, and your spouse dies, is your mother-in-law still your mother-in-law? You know, mm. well, at what point, at what length of time does family count? Um, I think that's a question that people struggle with. I think people, if there's a, if there's a longer length of time, I think people are really ready to recognize family, um, a chosen family as legitimate. But if it's a short period of time, it's, it's much easier to write off. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. You know, your chosen family is your chosen family. Um, regardless yeah uh, and with Yelena we can say it, you know, it was real to me but it doesn't matter what your perspective from the outside is if it was real to me it was real to me yeah. uh, also just thinking in that scene just because she was so young she didn't know none of it was real nobody told me mm. just just how and going back to what you were saying about trauma about how the smaller children the younger children don't get told what's going on and grow up with really strange memories of often difficult episodes in the family life or in the community. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's another one of these moments where, you know, the MCU takes something that is real, you know, in real life and real families and and childhood and development, and it puts it in a context of of the imagination and the hero that that makes it really easily digestible. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that remark about I didn't know that resonates with a lot of my experience with like my cousins, my, you know, sort of my extended family who are like siblings in a way. But we've done we've over the years, we've done a lot of work trying to piece together what happened in the past. And it might be that the younger cousins, you know, weren't aware, you know, they have a vague memory of something. But, you know, the older cousins remember, you know, the larger context and can kind of fill in some information and. I feel like we all have different pieces of this bigger story that is our family. So, um, and you know, so when Yelena says like, I didn't know, you know, I was in the dark. I think that's probably something that a lot of families experience where, you know, I, you know, I forget that my, my younger relatives don't know some of the things I know, um, but they know things I don't know. They hear pieces of the story I don't hear. And that, that work of putting it all together, I think is something probably a lot of families do. Yeah, and I, I think there's something there as well, assembled family, we're assembling the story of our lives, this, the shared story of our lives. Even with my sister, who is roughly about the same age as me, there's a, a year or so between us, things she has opened up to me about recently 
Um, yeah, I, I don't know how much I can go into really because it's her story, but it was cast one way because of the way my parents interpreted it. But kind of she's saying to me, no, actually, it, it was this way, and this is something that I'm still unpacking, still unraveling. And I was like thinking, we we sat around the same meal table, we shared the same house, but I didn't really know the internal side of her story. Yeah. Yeah. There's a a lot there in that scene, and I, I've got to say, for me, Elena, you know, Florence Pugh, just the breakout character, breakout actor of the, the movie, just the emotional storm going on just below the surface before she speaks up is, and even as she speaks, it is profoundly moving mm-hmm. well and and like you and your sister there are people at the table who you know are surprised by the way she's feeling because yeah they even though they were all in the same family even though they all saw the same things they're seeing it still from different perspectives yeah. um so what a powerful scene yeah perhaps we could use this as a jumping off point to discuss family across the marvel cinematic universe and i've got a note here just about uh wandavision how wanda creates for herself almost the perfect nuclear family with the white picket fence and all the domestic trimmings and yet is it that really that traditional we are an unusual couple you know oh i don't think that was ever in question That's right. You know, it's an interesting kind of example of a a chosen family because she made all the choices. (laughs) She chose her husband. She chose her children. She chose, you know, just everything about them. And I I think it also raises some interesting questions about authenticity, which is, you know, at least in in my family, it's kind of a constant, um, it's a constant dynamic, you know, with um, having a a stepchild and having an adopted child and, um, you know, especially I think as a, as a child, when you're trying to form these narratives, you need to, you need to have things that, that make absolute judgments, right? Who's, who's my real mom? Who really loves me? Um, who, who is on my side unequivocally? And, um, you know, how does a family that is 100% chosen or, um, created, how does that affect the authenticity discussion? Right. What do you think? I think I think that's what makes it a remarkable story is that it is an authentic family. So anyone who watches that show, they're going to care about the kids. They're going to care about vision, even though going back to this idea that they aren't real. I mean, in a very little se- literal sense, they are not real. They've been created by Wanda using magic. Um, and yet they are fully real to us as the audience, to everyone who's interacting with them. That is a real family in, in every meaningful sense of the word. And I think that's really where you see the MCU kind of pushing on this concept of authenticity in a really interesting way. Um, and taking it, I mean, taking the idea of family to like almost a radical place. Family can be something that, you know, is is so different from the sort of biological conception of family that we can even look at four people only one of whom is is like you know real in the human sense and we can look at them and say that is still a real family somehow and and we'll look at the mcu getting us to this point where we can feel like a family is something so different that it's truly not biological at all um i think that uh that that just that show has caused me to think in different ways about what family means 
Yeah. And I think going in the other direction as well, it, it just points me to how any family can be seen as a family of choice. It may not be a choice that's owned by every member equally. Mm-hmm. When you and another person decide to have a child, well, for example, with your daughter, she had no choice in being born. And, and you often hear children throw back, back at their parents, I didn't ask to be born. But there, yeah. there's a level of choice there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as a, as a foster parent, I've, I've heard people um, kind of often talk about, well, and our, our middle child has not like extensive special needs, but some special, you know, um, need in terms of just help and development. And, um, people will often say something like, oh, well, you know, you chose, you know, you chose something special or something extra. And I always think they're often parents themselves. And I often think, well, if your child was born and needed, you know, whatever it is, speech therapy, whatever, would you just abandon your child? (laughs) You know, nobody knows who their family is going or their children at least are going to turn out to be. And I think that's also kind of an interesting um, kind of dynamic with the idea of choice, right? We, we are choosing to commit to these people, not only who they are today, but who they will be tomorrow. And we're accepting that that person who they will be tomorrow is not necessarily the construct that we have in our heads. Mm. Um, And when people, you know, decide to make a different choice as a society generally we look down on them right um and people are always free to make that choice but i think that also plays in with that authenticity like what makes it an authentic relationship is that kind of eternal commitment um yeah uh, and I think we see that in one division, even kind of you know, Wonder on some level chooses to create this family for herself, but she in no way chooses who they're going to be. Billy and Tommy are such a surprise to her; they uh-huh. grow and develop in leaps and bounds in completely unexpected ways. And in fact, she finds they're the only ones she can't really control in the town of Westview in any way, you know. And they grow to be quite unique and individually, even as twins, they're very, very different. We've, we've got the quieter, kind of more thoughtful, introspective Billy and the brash and excitable, yet wants to be so cool Tommy. And I, I think that's like you're saying, we have no say in who the people we relate to, whether they be children, whether they be our partners or any other member of our family, who they're going to turn out to be. And yet that's part of the commitment we're making to them to find ways to grow together and to commit to loving them. Mm. Yeah. I think every parent can relate to that idea. Like the people you can least influence in the world are your own kids. <laughs> um. <laughs> or maybe that's just us. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I think it's a universal one way or another. And I think the more people try to control what others around them, especially their kids, the the more they'll just find ways to rebel and subvert that influence. I think that's right. Um... Well, I think this is kind of um, a nice possible segue into the um, uh, kind of orphan trope too, you know, as we're talking about like the more that you try to control a child, the more that they try to exert their own control and, and this idea of, um, why we as a society are drawn to to the orphan trope as a way to act out, you know, 
what we think of families. I just want to say one more thing about WandaVision, which is yeah. this is a totally imagined family in the MCU. I mean, it comes out of Wanda's own mind. And we have, I think, the single most like emotionally powerful um, line in the entire MCU. Uh, what is grief, if not love persevering? I mean, I, I don't think you're ever going to get a more emotionally powerful line in the MCU. It's so much so that it's called The Line. Yeah. And, and what is that pertaining to? It's, a, it's truly an imagined family. That's mm. remarkable what they did there. They really pushed our understanding of what a family is and what a family can be. Um, so I'm sorry, though. I've, I've, now I've backtracked a little bit. <laughs> I, I'm going to keep uh, us on that moment there because I'm reminded of one of our line from the last episode. I think it's the last thing Wanda actually says to her children. And it's on this theme of choice. It's thank you for choosing me to be your mom. Mm. And I, I feel like that, in a way, is just as profound Billy and Tommy never chose to be born, and yet there's something there. In some way, they chose to be Wander's kids. They chose chose Wander. That's just Wander maybe surrendering to the fact that all these things are beyond her control, and yet she's been gifted with something truly wonderful. Yeah, that's very sweet. Very yeah. Sweet. No, and it's hard to even think about that scene, um, you know. And, uh, you know, the way they choose to, you know, just put the kids to bed. Just sit together. Um, one more time. This goes back to the idea, like, any parent can relate to that. And that is as real as a family can be. You would say something like that. You would put your kids to bed in that scenario. Um, even as the very fabric of reality is disappearing around you. They're just real uh, uh, through and through. And they're, you know, and they're going to come back. We're going to see Billy and Tommy and Vision again. Um, because they are real. Um, because being a family made them real. Gosh, I hope so. Yeah. So, Carrie, did you want to talk about Loki? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was picking um, up the Loki vibes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was just tearing up thinking about that scene, though. It's so sweet. And, like, um, if I can just say one sure. more thing about it, it, it's also really sweet to me, the idea of um, your kids choosing you, you know, as a mom, because, you know, for all but one of my kids, my kids do have other choices of, you know, authentic mom and, you know, um, not to take away from that authentic mom relationship. They do choose me. They do choose to love me. And it is just, um, you know, so incredibly meaningful. And I, I think you're exactly right. Even, even in traditional biological relationships, your kids are still choosing you every time they listen to something that you have to say, they are actively choosing you. And it's not something I think we often appreciate, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in our busy lives. Yeah, that line at first, I did not fully understand it. Um, and it took me some time to make sense of why Wanda felt that way. Um, because you don't, yeah, you don't often remind yourself that, oh, yeah, they are choosing to love me just as I'm choosing mm -hmm. to love them um, in a family when you're a parent. Yeah. Um, so with Loki, um, so Loki and Thor are just kind of my favorite dynamic, um, because, you know, I see in Loki this, um, this kind of, I guess, really an adolescent in, in my mind, I think of him as an adolescent because he's, um, you know, just constantly questioning his place in the world and, um, his family's love for him and that 
kind of, I don't want to say forces him, but it causes him to act out in these ways that are, you know, incredibly um, awful. Um, but it's also as, as a viewer, it's transparent and it's just fascinating to me how, um, it, it seems time and time again, Thor doesn't see that he doesn't see that underlying problem because he doesn't face those same questions. Um, and it's kind of, you know, to their, to their detriment, like they kind of have to go through this longer path than if they, they had the self-awareness to, to confront it more directly. Like they kind of can't see one another. They can't yeah. see each other's situation. They're typical men. They're not talking about their feelings, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um. Loki, I thought the world of you. I thought we were going to fight side by side forever, but at the end of the day, you're you and I'm me. And I know maybe they're still good in you, but let's be honest, our paths diverged a long time ago. Yeah. It's probably for the best that we never see each other again. That's what you always wanted. He to get help. No, and I think of, you know, I think that perfectly encapsulates their relationship. And it's part of what makes their relationship so fun. Thor is sort of clumsy and um loki is sort of reluctant and and resentful but then they love each other i'm thinking yes. of these uh get the get yes. help scene yeah. in thor ragnarok which i think that's their whole relationship in a nutshell loki's like i hate doing this and thor's like no it's so much fun and yeah. and that's the two of them right there yeah. and there is that love and there is that history you know yeah. you know they've done this before you know they've done this many times and because loki hates it yeah. uh, so yeah. much and um it's just such a brilliant little uh, uh, scene where you know we we just see a ton of real family history in you know ten seconds on screen. Yeah. That's right. And I think Thor is just so comfortable in the dynamic that he doesn't spot Loki's discomfort. <laughs> he, look, yeah. Thor's just like, "This is fun. We're having fun." Can <laughs> <laughs> <Loki's like>, I'm <laughs> not having fun <laughs> as he gets hurled across the room. <laughs> yeah. What? Get help? No. I hate it. It's great. It works every time. It's humiliating. Do you have a better plan? No. We're doing it. We are not doing Get Help. Get help! Please! My brother's dying! Get help! Help him! Oh, classic. I still hate it. It's humiliating. No, not for me, it's not. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and oh, I'm sorry. I, I was sort of jealous. So Carrie picked, you know, for her favorite MCU family dynamic, Thor and Loki. And as soon as she picked that, I wished I had thought of it first because that's that, that is such a just iconic, important, perfect family dynamic. And um, Loki in the larger Asgardian royal family, too, I think is like such a, you know, such an interesting family dynamic that we could, you know, we can look at from so many different angles. That's right. You know, it, it also is a good example of how kids often tend to relate more to one parent than another. That's right. right. Like Frigga and, and Loki and, and Thor and Odin. And, um, you know, also as, as we were kind of sitting here talking, I was thinking, I initially was coming to this thinking about, you know, my own children and, and seeing this, you know, kind of adopted child dynamic, but it's also true of probably every sibling set, you know, and, possibly even every sibling we're, we're all feeling like a black sheep as we're growing and developing and um our siblings are often there with us but maybe you know 
not seeing what we're going through, just as you were talking about how you and your sister would sit at the same table, but have two totally different perspectives on what was going on and not seeing the other person's needs. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting, um, sibling dynamic, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I've always found it incredibly touching the way Loki interacts with his mom. Um, and you know, their relationship is really special, is really different. He gets his powers from her. He doesn't get, you know, his powers from Odin. Um, and so when we do the rare times we get to see them on screen together are just so special. Um, and so painful, you know, once you know, you know, how their, how their story ends, um, it's so hard to think about after the fact, you know, losing that parent um, in the way that he does. Yeah. It kind of makes it frustrating for me in the TV show Loki, where Loki and Sylvie, Loki and Sylvie sat on the train and Sylvie says, tell me about your mom. And all, all Loki says is that she's the queen of Asgard, as if that was meant to tell us everything, when there's clearly so much, much more to that relationship that we just see in those quiet moments they share together in the dark world and in the relationship you see between Thor and Frigga. It just doesn't really do it justice. Mm. I actually took that as a sign that it was just too too raw even to speak about um, too. you know, even as he's bearing his soul to Sylvie in other ways. Um, and, and in my experience, you know, often when people say very little, right, that's when there's the most to unpack, right? Mm -hmm. And I I think that that was one of those moments and and probably what the um, directors were kind of going Mm -hmm. for, you know, kind of that unspoken um, trauma and and trying to to show the the size of the relationship and how meaningful it was. Perhaps there's just so much scope there. It's even, even at that point in the series, it was hard for Loki to get a handle. Yeah. She was just his yeah. mom. She was the queen of his world. You know, what more could he say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing that I really loved about Thor, Thor and Loki, um, is in the Loki TV show. You know, when they're playing through his um death scene with Thanos, you know they show um Thor hugging Loki. And, and the implication, right, is that that was actually the last thing that Loki felt. Mm. You know, it wasn't actually Thanos. It was that he knew how much his brother loved him. Yeah. And that was just so touching to me. Yeah, that tape contains his whole life. And so we know because that tape goes all the way into the hug that Loki is alive for that hug. And, yeah. and that's his, uh-huh. you know, that's how he exits. Um, isn't that amazing? Yeah. Such a meaningful arc for that character, you know, since from my perspective anyway, you know, his, his, all of his actions are really driven by this quest to, you know, deal with this childhood trauma or um, question of identity. And at the end of his life, his brother was there for him in a very meaningful way. And he was there for his brother. That's right. Wow. I hadn't really seen it that way, but now that you say it, of course. Yeah. well, and I love that in What If, that when we see an alternate universe where Lodi, Loki grows up fully the king of the Jotunheim, this, this I thought that was incredibly meaningful. He and Thor are still brothers. I love the implication that there is something so powerful about their brotherhood, their relationship, that even in a universe 
where they are not in the same family. They find each other and they find their... I love that thought that, like, even if our kids grew up and they had not met one another, that they would find each other, that they would have a connection. Um, it uh, it spans universes, Thor and Loki. Um, yeah, that's just a, a brilliant moment. Uh, and just how uncomplicated, actually, the relationship is between them because they don't have to vie for position as God's favorite or mm. anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a cool version of their brotherhood where they just get to enjoy each other and be themselves and And they're so yeah. goofy. Yeah. Just so 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 goofy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun. You got two Thors there, uh <laughs> Bring it on in. I can't yeah. believe you came, Loki. You are the absolute best. You're my brother from another mother, man. I mean that. I mean it. Ah, brothers forever. Brothers forever. Forever. I have a message here uh, from a listener, Tally. He says, Guardians of the Galaxy is a good example of found family. I can't entirely say how it resonates with me, but I do like that no matter how argumentative or occasionally dysfunctional they may seem, at the end of the day, they do legitimately care about each other in their own way. Yeah, you know, I I totally agree. I think they're a great example of a, a found family or chosen family or assembled family. And, you know, Nick and I were, were discussing last night about um, Guardians of the Galaxy kind of in contrast to the Avengers, um, which is another um, kind of narrative of a chosen family you know uh, black widow's character often refers to their um their group as a family but you know i find um guardians of the galaxy as a much more authentic uh family dynamic um you know we, we were talking last night about how the avengers it seems like it, it seems a little manipulative and it seems like there are fam pockets of families within mm. the avengers but it's not um, it's not authentic, and they're not on the same kind of playing field as it it comes off in Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, because Guardians are truly chosen. They were not exactly. You know, there's no Nick Fury kind of pulling the strings, right. and, and they're not a boy together. band. Uh -huh. who, you know, the manager brought them together. They were all playing in the garage from the first day. You know, <laughs> so. Um, um, I told you I don't want to join your super secret boy band. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, I, I remember you do everything yourself. How's it working out for you? So I actually like I like <laughs> Guardians as your like your pure you yeah. know your you know your your um, archetype within the MCU yeah. of the the chosen family That's or right. the found family. And I think it goes back to the idea of authenticity. Like anytime we talk about family, it, I guess it just always comes back to that because it it just comes off as authentic. Mm -hmm. um, it comes off as them being equal yeah. and they're yeah. equal. They they all choose to be a part of it. They all have a chance to leave. They all contemplate leaving, but they all come back mm -hmm. or they all they all choose to remain and they grow together and they love mm -hmm. each other and they support each other yeah. um, and, and they sacrifice for right. one another. And they have leadership, but it's a uh, much more democratic leadership. It, it's a much more um, it has a lot more give and take, you know, it, when you look at it in contrast to the Avengers. Sure. Um, which I think is an important part of that. Yeah. You know, yeah. one of the things I find really interesting about it is that. Um, the relationships defy kind of simple categorization. It's not very easy to say like, oh, they're like brothers. The w the one clear relationship is probably 
Groot, uh, baby Groot and teenage Groot. He's a child, yeah. and they're all really the parents, though. There, there's no one kind of dad or mom. They, they all, they all seem to actually be bonding over uh, Groot. You said mm-hmm. about sacrifice. I think that sacrifice of of the adult Groot in the first Guardians is perhaps what drew them together, kind of really acted as a catalyst. But then, kind of bonding over raising. It's like three men and a baby, um, except it's kind of <laughs> f- five aliens and a Groot. <laughs> yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that, um, they all too bring a pretty significant trauma, and mm-hmm. and I think the movie does a good job. It's not the the, the first Guardians is not heavy handed, but throughout the film we see each of their traumas. Mm-hmm. We see Drax's loss of his family. We see. Rockets, you know, victimization uh, through medical experimentation. Um, and, and so we see, you know, of course, we start with Peter, you know, losing his mom and being taken from his home yeah. uh, all just seconds apart. And so um, I think that tells us something important about chosen, about assembled family, something about vulnerability, um, about trauma keeps you know for them that's that's part of what binds them all together i think is seeing each other's traumas um that scene where um after the battle um uh, after the final battle in guardians the the first volume um where drax just sits down next to rocket and just puts his hand on rocket just puts his arm around him um i think that's that's something really powerful and really subtle um that says a lot about who they are as a family and about how, you know, meaningful that relationship's already become, even though they've only been working together a short time. They see each other, they understand each other. You know, Drax knows what that loss of Groot means to Rocket, and he's there for him. Yeah, and I think, just going back to what I was saying about Groot, I think it's in that moment of sacrifice, it's Groot's vulnerability that touches the vulnerability in the other Guardians that enables Rocket to open up. Hey there. (laughs) <laughs> oh, sorry, we've got uh, a little visitor here. Well, it is a family event. <laughs> That's right. Uh, what would a podcast about family be without uh, an interruption from one of our one of our kids? So, uh... Hello, Alex. Hello! We ready to answer some questions, Alex? Yeah? Okay, so Alex, who is your favorite Marvel superhero? Devil Dinosaur! Awesome! Devil Dinosaur's Moon Girl's friend, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. He's a very exciting superhero. We haven't got a film or a cartoon of Devil Dinosaur yet, have we? But that would be really exciting if we did. Oh, yes, I want to get one, Dad. That would be great. That would be brilliant. Does Mum remind you of any superheroes? Don't you know, like, how green hair? Green, you mean, oh, green mean, hair. Do you mean Gamora? Gamora! <laughs> she reminds you of Gamora. What, why is mom like Gamora? I don't know. Is she strong? And brave? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And t- Gamora's quite tough. You don't mess with Gamora. Why? Because she's tough. Do you mess with mom? <laughs> <laughs> We're getting a nod here, people. <laughs> Maybe Alex can mess with with Mom the way that Groot gets to mess around with Gamora. Is that right? Yeah. 
Yeah. What about Dad? Does Dad remind you of any superheroes? Black Panther. Black Panther. Black Panther. Oh, wow. Black Panther. That's high praise. Why, why does Dad remind you of Black Panther? He's my favorite hero. Oh, he's your favorite superhero as well. And is Dad one of your favorite heroes too? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. So Dad reminds you of Black Panther, but not so much that he'd be your favorite hero. <laughs> okay. Alex, I've got one more question for you, and this one's a big, big question. Which superheroes would make the best moms and dads, and why? Um, I don't know. You don't know? Which which superhero would make an awesome mom or dad? Maya! Would Miles make a good mom or dad? Dad. Well, it sounds like you're a really big fan of Marvel superheroes, Alex. You like Devil Dinosaur, and Miles Morales, Spider-Man. And mom reminds you of Gamora a little bit. And dad reminds you a little bit of Black Panther. Yeah, excellent. If you were a superhero, what kind of superpowers would you have? I have speed. Like Flash. Speed? <laughs> speed. Like the Flash. Wow, you'd like to be super fast. I think you're already quite super fast. Is that right? <laughs> Yeah. He's he's running in place, Matt. You you can't see it, but he's sprinting in place right here as we're talking. Yeah, I I, I can see the molecules vibrating, just like <laughs> on the Flash. I'd like to say you're, that you're seeing him be just like Quicksilver, um, myself, being a Marvel partisan. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, Alex, for coming and talking to us. It's really nice to see you. Bye. Bye. So uh, I think I was saying about how it's Groot's vulnerability that brings out the vulnerability in Rocket, the toughest and gruffest member of the Guardians, that evokes a, an empathetic response from Drax. I think it is just really, really extraordinary. It just takes actually one person just to unite the family in a way. Kind of reminds me how my Nana Baines, uh, my dad's mum, would be the member of the family to kind of bind his family together to kind of keep the brothers and sisters, my aunts and uncles, in touch with each other. I know for my dad it's always been hard that his family ha have had looser bonds for keeping in touch. And after my nana passed on, my dad really pushed for them to make the effort to get together at least once a year. On the anniversary, I think it's the anniversary of her funeral, we try and come together. It's hard to get everybody in the same place at the same time, but yeah. That is so hard. And I think it's also, you know, where you started made, made me think about how important it is to have um, a purpose in a family. You know, often um, if you if you don't feel like mm -hmm. there's a need, I think it's a lot easier to, you know, not come together once a year, right? But when you, you feel that need, you know that somebody needs you to be there for them, it, it somehow makes it all so much more clear, you know, what clear and immediate, right? But that you do need to come together. Yeah. Um, and I guess sometimes even though it doesn't feel immediate, it, it really is, um, like you were saying about your own family. Yeah. And it kind of reminds me again of the Guardians, how the extended Ravager family comes together for Yondu's funeral. Uh, Nick, if I read your message out in, 
in the previous podcast episode just how much that scene touched you. I just, you know, that that scene kind of gets to me on so many different levels. I, I'm just thinking about the music involved as well, because music is such a big part of Guardians. Yeah. And the father and son song kind of just speaks to that gulf of communication between a son and his father that kind of Peter perhaps felt with both his dads in some way, kind of with Ego, who was, I think, the universe's biggest deadbeat dad. Um, but kind of also with Yondu, <laughs> even with the dad who came through for him, they they didn't understand each other. You know, they didn't get each other's sense of humour. You know, you, d- you don't tell a kid that you're going to, that the crew want to eat him. <laughs> that's not a normal thing to say to a kid uh, yeah. yeah that was such a perfect choice for that moment too i also felt like cracklin probably felt that way in that moment that he yeah. also probably saw yeah. yondu as a parent and uh somebody he had an unspoken bond with that was frustrating yeah. so i mean he's the one who inadvertently gets yondu overthrown yeah um you know and and um, you know, by saying you always stick up for Peter Quill and you act like the rest of us don't exist. And, and, you know, then to see him cheering at Yondu's, uh, Ravager funeral, um, you know, I think, I think we're seeing uh, a little bit of depth in Craglin there that. And Craglin is, um. Sean Gunn. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of my personal favorites. One of my personal favorites too. I'm a Gilmore Girls oh, fan, yeah. so I gotta gotta appreciate. Him I always in there. forget that he's in that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Best character. He brought so much to the show. <laughs> I actually think so. I think he's an amazing character yeah. in both. Yes. Um, well, and he's Rocket on set as well. Oh, so yeah. when you're yeah. seeing the the body language of Rocket, and a lot of the um, a lot of the great lines from Rocket are ad libbed by oh, yeah. Sean Gunn. Um, so so when you know. When they when they're all standing up and he says, "Okay, we're all standing up now, like a bunch of idiots." That's actually Sean Gunn. Uh... I, I I mean, isn't that kind of kind of from Rocket? It, there's that, always that one family member. It's like I'm just not into what we're doing right yep. now. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that seems as much like a moment of family as anything else in uh, Guardians. Like, mm-hmm. okay, here we are, like a bunch of idiots, and yeah, mm-hmm. there's that one family member who. Yeah. Uh, just thinks it's all silly. Now I'm standing. You all happy? We're all standing up now. Bunch of jackasses standing in a circle. Yeah. But he, he's an indispensable member of the family. I mean, I just think of uh, Groot's last scene in Infinity War when he fades into dust. It's Rocket he's reaching out to. And apart, so another bit of behind the scenes information. I don't know if you know this, but apparently his last "I am Groot" simply translates as "dad." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. I read that on the internet at some point, and I'm sure I cry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just Groot scenes always make me cry. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um... <sighs> yeah. You're just hitting all the really tough stuff in Guardians, in the Matt. Feels, yeah, you know? uh, yeah. <laughs> you you and you knew how I felt about uh, Yondu's funeral. You had to bring that back I'm up so sorry. today. Uh, <laughs> couldn't leave it in the grief episode. <laughs> well, I just found there was so much overlap. Kind of when I was preparing notes for this, there was so much overlap between the grief and the family. Yeah. Um, 
maybe that's that's a big insight in and of itself that yeah that's that's where grief comes from this goes back to wandavision that's too right. that's that's what grief is you know and it comes from loving someone really deeply in the way you only can with or the way that you know you do with family yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe that's kind of the only way sometimes to really tell if it's real for a lot of people is how you feel after that person can no longer be around at all mm. Mm. I'm sad let's not find out <laughs> okay <laughs> let's just plan to live forever yeah, yeah that's absolutely. my plan <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we have to talk about Gamora and Nebula, at least momentarily, because I think that's such an important example of the way shared trauma can break unite a family you. apart and united at the mm -hmm. same time. They are bonded by their trauma. They're bonded mm -hmm. by being abducted, being, you know, mm -hmm. subjected to all sorts of, you know, violence, trauma, abuse, um, and that pulls them apart too. I mean, that really makes it hard for Nebula to love Gamora, and and they have this, um, um, you know, they have this fight on Ego on the planet, um, and Nebula's just letting it all out, and she's so angry, and and it's this extended fight scene, but it's like a conversation, mm -hmm. um, because you're just seeing how much Nebula is hurt by the fact that, you know, they had this shared trauma, and she got the worst end of it, and mm -hmm. Gamora was you know always the favored child and so i think their relationship is is a really powerful window into being sisters or being siblings i think it's also interesting that you frame that um fight is almost a conversation and, and like a way to work through trauma because you know i think that often at least with children but probably with adults too we talk about um needing to find other ways to express or work through issues, right? Mm -hmm. Because when things are really tough, you, you often can't necessarily talk about it in a, um, in a real way. And so, so we do look for things for, for children and for adults, um, that are physical as a way to kind of have those conversations. And they were actually able to do that with each other, which is, you know, kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure that's also something that, you know, probably, bonded them that they were able to work through that with each other as opposed to you know on their own yeah yeah and i think there's something there about the father figure the parent figure having stepped away kind of that this conversations were only really possible it's like Thanos is the, both the cause of the problem um and cause of the conflict and the tension between them but also kind of a blockage in the communication about that problem yeah that's that's so true and and um you know as we're talking about this being an echo of um you know real life uh you know i think that's that's absolutely true and and what i've seen in my own life and other people's lives you know um your parents uh consciousness kind of echoes with you no matter what you know you you still have your your mom or your dad's voice in the back of your head um and it can be hard to break out of that role very hard yeah i think that goes back to those kind of scripts you were talking about earlier with black widow they fell into this scripted roles very easily and even when the family aren't there we still have those kind of scripts in our head in the way we relate to each other and sometimes yeah. we end up replicating them in kind of the relationships we choose that's right we perpetuate the trauma and 
and um, have a cycle of trauma or abuse and um, just try to do a little bit better right with each generation yeah, <laughs> That's right. yeah and I, I can kind of see that in black widow they're trying to break the cycle um because i think kind of even the parents alexei melena they're part of it you know melena was part of the red room before her her daughters were and in a way that isn't that what they're doing kind of by taking the fight to the red room kind of trying to break that cycle of trauma so that and violence so that no no more little girls are caught up in that and they can escape it themselves that's right and they're never totally free of it, but they're, you know, they're going to have that, that trauma and that baggage forever, but they're going to try to save the next generation, which I think very much resonates with my own experience of family, and I think probably a lot of people, is, okay, can't fix what happened in the past, but maybe I can spare the next generation from, you know, A, B, and C. Yeah. Right. And that's a heroic act in itself. Uh, I'm t- taking that from a Facebook post that I read, just kept... On this very subject, I think it might have been on Parenting Decolonized. It was just saying that when you confront the kind of pain of your past the, and the cycle of violence in yourself, that, that that is actually a heroic act because you're absorbing some of that um, pain directly rather than mm-hmm. passing it on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you the sequestration of it and it stays with you. Yeah. I also wonder if that's part of the work that Tony Stark is doing um, in Endgame in mm. trying to confront I mean all the way through his arc he, he is clearly wrestling with the unresolved feelings he had towards his, his parents uh, mainly his father there's whole kinds of things there there's the expectations um kind of never having felt like he he measured up to the gold standard um that howard had for him but and never really been able to have it out with his dad or to kind of prove himself one way or another because that was cut short far too early um mm-hmm. but and that kind of affects how he connects with the the young men like Harley Keener, like Peter Parker, he mentors. And that perhaps connects with how he tries to be a different kind of parent to his daughter, Morgan. Yeah. I think his relationship with Peter, he is replicating his relationship with his father. So I see that as very much, right. you know, Tony and Peter is very much Howard and Tony to the detriment of the relationship and i and you see his final sort of his 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 growing awareness of that in endgame and that ultimately you know trying to fix that spurring him to um you know develop the technology to go back in time but right um right and to bring it back to the the theme of assembled families it's very much how we choose who our assembled families are often is to think about whatever whatever the trauma or issues whatever we haven't fully processed we look for people in those families so that we can work through whatever those issues are. That's true. So he's reaching out to Peter and saying, I want to do better, you know, here's another yeah. bright young person and maybe I can do better than my dad did on some level. Yeah. And he doesn't get there and then he loses Peter. Oh gosh, that was, I almost wanted to choose that line when we're going to talk about a single line. I almost mm-hmm. wanted, I almost chose a, I lost the kid 
mm-hmm. we lost the kid. Oh, it's just devastating. Yeah. yeah. Um, cause you know, there's so, I mean, speaking of not saying much and, and that having the most meaning, yeah. um, we know how much that means to Tony. Cause all I can say is we lost the kid. Yeah. yeah. And Tony just such a work in the end game, kind of both, literally and practically in creating the time machine and going back in ending the Thanos threat but also the emotional work of confronting his father but instead of in some way acting out his frustrations he actually seems to find some peace mm-hmm. he, yeah. he comes to terms with the limitations that Howard had um, that he was just a, another man and just another human he, he perhaps could not sustain the weight bear the weight of all the expectation that he placed on Tony kind of and all the weights that Tony then placed on the memory of his dad and he got that hug kind of he he got the hug with his dad that he never gave him before he left that final time and then he replicates that by giving Peter the hug the very case like Peter don't talk we're just gonna have that hug we're we're in that place now yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's right we're not there yet becomes you know get in here um. <laughs> 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 holy cow you will not believe what's been going on do you remember when we were in space and i got all dusty and i must have passed out because i woke up and you were gone but dr stranger's there right he was like it's been five years come on they need us and then he started doing the yellow sparkly thing that he does all the time what are you doing Oh, this is nice. It's it's kind of funny too, um, because I, I've often thought, you know, as I'm like thinking through things as a parent, um, I often try to give my children the things that I felt like I didn't get mm-hmm. as a child, but then I see them react to that, and I see where <laughs> the things I'm giving them are not the things mm-hmm. that they need. You know, which is also kind of an interesting, I think, possible insight into that interaction. Like, is, is that really what Peter needed or was that what Tony needed? You mm-hmm. know, um, which I don't know in this moment um, if well, that's true. But in my life, that's true that, yeah. you know, I have to be really conscious of not just making my relationship with my children mm-hmm. about my own needs. Yeah. And Tony doesn't really get closure until he gets a handle on his own needs. Yeah. And he doesn't get that closure from Peter. He gets it, and he doesn't get it even from, I mean, we have to remember, he has the ability to simulate any interaction with his, he has the barf technology, uh, not a beautiful name, but yeah. he has the ability to <laughs> simulate any interaction with his parents that he wants. Yeah. But what really does it for him is when he just has that realization, dad is a human being, dad is flawed, and I can understand that and forgive him. And that's what ultimately, you know, sort of sets Tony free. And I think that's something everyone has to do is at some point in their maturation realize my parents were human beings. They were making mistakes and I can still love them and just understand that about them. And that's ultimately what, you know, frees him to, you know, whatever move past the trauma. Um, So it's nothing to do with Pete, nothing. But I think you're right. He's trying to fix this through his interactions with Peter, but he doesn't get that. He just gets it by growing um, himself. Yeah, I think you're both right. I think... Perhaps that hug was one moment where both the parent and the child figure kind of both needed the same thing. But from so many experiences, I, I know that I recognize what Carrie is saying that actually kind of when when you're 
bringing up the next generation so often you're kind of thinking about the things you faced when you were younger kind of and what your needs were um but what the world was like but we're not bringing up the next generation for that world we're kind of discovering a whole new world with them which is terrifying <laughs> yeah that's true it is this is the end of part one of Marvel Moments. Assemble family in the Marvels, same as it, universe. Marvel Moments is a human happening podcast. All excerpts from movies and TV shows used here are copyright Marvel Entertainment and Disney and are used here for the purposes of criticism, review and quotation. Special thanks go to David Shaw for the creation of our epic theme tune, The Moment Has Come, to the Marvel Moments Facebook group for their support and encouragement, and to our friends and families for all their help and faith in us. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Our Marvel Moment, and on Instagram at Marvel Moments Podcast to be notified of upcoming episodes and to join in the conversation. And look out for our holiday special episode coming very soon.